The Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance in Beverly, West Virginia is proud to present Switchbacks and Wagon Tracks. First in a four-part audio history series remembering life along the Stanton to Parkersburg Turnpike. Family stories in West Virginia can take you right back to the earliest settlement of the Allegheny frontier and lurking memories of the Civil War pervade the regions through which the Turnpike passes, especially the Allegheny Highland campaigns along the Turnpike in the early 1860s. Written by Carrie Noble Klein. My granddad was stationed at Camp Allegheny. It's just half a mile from the Virginia line. I will take you there and show you that. You see, along that road was called the Stanton and Parkersburg Pike. It went from Stanton, Virginia to Parkersburg, West Virginia. This is before the state became a union. My granddad was raised over as a Navy and this Stanton and Parkersburg Pike went down through the valley up here after come across the top of the mountain. It went up to where they had the battlefield, the Beverly. That's the way the old road went. And that's called the Stanton and Parkersburg Pike. I don't imagine how they built that road up again in the Allegheny Mountains back then because the steep country in there where it went up over that mountain from the way they wound around it to get up to the top, I bet you it's 12 miles but they made a better grade the way they went in. That was when they had horse and buggy days. That road was all made by hand, wasn't it? There wasn't no machines or nothing like that. That whole road was made all by hand. We moved from Virginia when I was six years old, becoming a wagon. Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike was a great artery for those times. And it was a stagecoach road, of course. We moved up on the pike in about 1939 or 40. I'm not just sure which year it was. I was about nine years old, I guess. And that's where the battle cemetery is on top of that, where all the soldiers are buried. But I still like to go back on the mountain. It's, to me, it's still home. There's nobody back there anymore, but I still like to go back there and visit. It's got a peacefulness back there for me and brings back a lot of memories. Well, I was born up here on Cheat Mountain, November the 21st, 1907. It was just a dirt road up there. We'd hear a car coming, we'd run to the road to look at it. <laughs> People had Ford cars in.
Well, my people migrated across the mountains from Virginia while West Virginia was still part of Virginia. Matter of fact, they were abolitionists for the most part who were in Culpeper and, and Winchester, Virginia. And as the problems and, and issues of the Civil War started to develop and come to a head, they really didn't feel welcome in that part of Virginia and migrated over the mountains. I was born May the 6th, 1915 at Traveler's Repose in the downstairs west bedroom. Traveler's Repose was a name given to his tavern by John Yeager, who settled on the Greenbrier before 1782. Papa's mother was a Yeager, and this was an overnight stagecoach stop between Stanton, Virginia and Parkersburg, West Virginia. Very famous overnight stagecoach job. Native Americans were here. They certainly traveled from place to place. And if they've been here for 10 or 12,000 years, of course they found the best route. And of course they had trails all through the mountains. Trails running north and south, trails running east and west. They probably were the original people that were using what is now the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike. It would have been modified slightly to make it a wagon road, but basically it's following the same route that the early Indian trails would have followed. There were extensive trail networks that have often been recorded in modern history as buffalo slash Indian trails. We try to discourage that buffalo part now because the Indians were here before the buffalo in the eastern U.S. Indians have lived in what's now West Virginia and, you know, in, in this country for more than 12,000 years. Most of the Indians here experienced European cultures first through trade goods that came in from the East Coast. The Europeans are trading for pelts, for furs primarily. And the Indians are more than happy to give up these pelts, particularly beaver, for these European trinkets, things that essentially have little value to the Europeans. But unfortunately, with the goods that are traded, there's also uh, an unseen item that's exchanged, and that would be disease, diseases that the Indians have no natural immunities to, they've never really been exposed to, such as smallpox. These diseases sweep through villages and apparently devastate these Indian cultures. So that by the time any European ancestors arrived in this area, the people that were here were not the same people who had been here previously. So the chain of history is broken. For the road I walked these mountains On a crooked old path the Cherokee made For the road deer stood grazing Gentle and meek at the turn of the day For the road wind came singing A melody born in boughs of trees For the road whippoorwills calling Haunted the night and pacified me In 
into Parkersburg through that whole area. It was an incredible old growth forest. Sycamores, hackberry, cottonwoods, silver maple, you know, that was the forest type. And in the middle 1700s, that elk, the buffalo, the woods bison were very abundant. The white-tailed deer, and yeah, there were wolves and cougars. And then up on Point Mountain, on Route 15 between Valley Head and Webster Springs, there's a sign there that said the last buffalo was killed in 18 and 12 or somewhere along there. The woods bison. Animal trails were used, not surprisingly, by the first European explorers that came into the area as well. And so these trails were really the first access through the Allegheny Mountains, a very rugged area that kind of divided the continent at that time. With time, these trails evolved into transportation routes for the first settlers right across the Alleghenies. The first settlers used these pack horse trails to carry goods to market, the goods that they needed to trade for things that they couldn't make or get here in the mountains. They would often send pack horses east with items like belts. Yeah, you make something worth something, whether it's 300 years ago or today, like ginseng and lycopodium or golden seal, you make something worth something, and we're going to figure out how to go get it and get it to the marketplace. <laughs> That's just So they trap mink and raccoon and beaver and weasels. I know for certain that the wildlife was being depleted as we came west because there were no regulations. I mean, folks were eating wildlife for the most part and marketing wildlife. You know, deer and ducks and squirrels were sold in open markets in some of the larger cities. And whiskey. They would brew whiskey and other alcoholic spirits and pack those back east to the settlements, as they called them, to trade for goods that were needed back home. And, of course, the better pack horse trails evolve into the wagon trails. And these roads, not surprisingly, were focused on by people that wanted to build the first turnpikes through the mountains. We'll have a little homestead, a horse, a pig, a cow, and you shall mind the dairy while I speed the plow. Wait for the wagon, wait for the wagon, oh wait for the wagon, and we'll all take a ride. Your lips are red as poppies, your hair's a that was a period of history when go west, go west, and they went west and came to this valley. There was so much land and so much territory, you could go for days and not see anybody. It was isolated, wild. didn't know where it was even. And so they had to finally get together and get on their horses and go west and find the land. And they'd find it and settle on it and claim it. Around 1795, they came into the Tigers Valley. That's how the Huttons came to Huttonsville. Somebody had given him this land, and when he went to this land, somebody else had already claimed it. And they said they'd have a fight for it, and whichever one won the fight would claim the land. Was that your great-great-grandfather? I believe, it, I believe it was. There was a problem with who owned the land. And the one that won the fight won the land. And uh, 
Jonathan Hutton, great great grandfather, won the fight and won the land grant. Well, he could stand on his porch in every direction. Land that he saw was his land, and they still have it. The Staten to Parkersburg Turnpike crests the border between West Virginia and Virginia, not far from Durban. There's a stretch in there that is almost original, and there are both Confederate and Union fortifications along that line. If you come out of Durban going east, 250, I guess, there's a, a knoll there as you come around. You can still see the trenches, and it goes up over the hill and into Virginia. When you cross the Allegheny, then Lance Mountain, Monterey Mountain, there's the Cow Pasture River, the Bull Pasture River, Calf Pasture River, as you're going on to stand. Although the road roughly parallels 250 today, there are a lot of places where it, it strayed far, far from 250. And a lot of it goes through the National Forest today, and it's a rough road. I wouldn't have wanted to drive a wagon on that road with the drop-offs on either side, but that was superhighway at the time. If you come out of Durban going the other way, there was a road built across Cheat Mountain in the 1820s, which was called the Cheat Mountain Turnpike, that later ended up being mostly incorporated into the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike. This was Virginia then. And there was no real road, no connection between eastern Virginia and the western part of the state. So the road was really built to connect the eastern seaboard with the western part of the state and the Ohio River because it was a lot of river traffic. The route then passes on going through Huttonsville, Valley Bend, Daly to Beverly. From Beverly, which was a principal town at the time, and also, incidentally, the birthplace of Lemuel Chenoweth, the builder of many of the covered bridges on turnpikes, it then moves across fairly rugged ground to a place called Navy, and moves on further west through Buckhannon, following Route 33, goes to Weston, where it connects with the Weston and Gully Bridge Turnpike. It proceeds along from Weston west towards Allen Bridge, Camden, until it reaches what is now Route 47. And then it follows 47 towards Parkersburg, goes through Cox's Mill, Burnt House, Smithville, McFarland, and finally paralleling the Little Kanawha River and entering Parkersburg. So that's the route of this one turnpike. It would connect in Staunton with the famous Valley Turnpike in Virginia and in Parkersburg with the Ohio River. Most of the population was over in the eastern part along the seaboard. Of course, the first 13 states were all over there. And then there were these northeast Appalachian Allegheny ranges that just ran up and down, and they seemed to be a real barrier for the people from the east to get back here into the west. And so I think as the country started growing, they needed to expand westward, and they realized that. Geography is a strong component of the history of Western Virginia. It was isolated from the power structure in Richmond 
in both the Piedmont and Tidewater and it could only be rectified by adequate transportation system. Two of them were canals. One was the James River and Kanawha Canal and the other was Washington's proposal for the Potomac Canal. Between these two, there were proposals for road system to cross this very rugged mountain terrain. Well, actually, I think it surprises most people, but George Washington, who was an engineer, was the first one to come up with the idea that we need to penetrate through the mountains. And, of course, it didn't happen during his time. The whole history of this goes back to the English turnpike system, which was in place by the beginning of the 18th century, in which a series of toll roads were built. Virginia took this idea over, both in the colonial period, but our particular date is the formation of the Virginia Board of Public Works in 1816. This provided a mechanism for building transportation systems. They didn't have a Federal Department of Transportation or a Virginia Department of Transportation to come in and build new highways. These were business propositions. You would go to the legislature and ask to be incorporated, and you would sell stock. Now, very often the state purchased maybe two-thirds or three-fifths of that stock, and the rest was sold to private individuals who could turn around and make money because the road then became a private road where you would charge people to go through. Stanton, of course, was a very prosperous area, Augusta County, Virginia, and Parkersburg, being on the Ohio River, was becoming a terminus for steamboating. The people to the east of the mountains, they thought it was going to be an economic boon for them to have a more direct connection to the interior of the state, which would help open it up for economic development. In the first third of the 19th century, the 1830s in particular, the country experienced a commerce boom, and what fueled the rise of a lot of people's fortunes was transportation. This was the period when people were dabbling with things such as railroads, but they were real serious about canals and turnpikes to help facilitate that rapid Western movement. Transportation was evolving from just horseback and pack animals to carriages. And so when you started traveling by wagon or by carriage, you needed a little bit better road. You couldn't travel on the same roads that you could with just a horse. The carriages, the wheels of the carriage, you know, would tend to sink in the mud, so you needed a better road base to travel on, theoretically, year-round. This was a country on the move, and people were looking to help facilitate that rapid Western movement. And there were a lot of agricultural abuses in the East, and so soil was becoming exhausted. And if you wanted to be a farmer, and you wanted to be successful, you moved west to get to better land. Stanton, Virginia was always a crossroads. But in the 1830s, there was this description that forlorn-looking people with horses and carts to correspond and a train of flax-headed children were frequently seen moving through the town of Stanton. And when people asked them where they were going, they never failed to reply, they were going to the Ohio. Parkersburg was one of the larger population centers in the state at that time. 
the driving force was the Ohio River. Everybody wanted to get to the Ohio River, which links you to the Mississippi and, and links you to the West. Think of the way the waters flow. That's the way the people's thoughts went. There were really a series of parallel east-west turnpike roads, which are very important in the history of West Virginia, starting in the north with a national road. Then there were a series of local turnpikes that were meant to interconnect with these. We had the Northwestern Turnpike, which went from Winchester, Virginia, through Preston County on into Taylor County, and it ultimately went into Parkersburg area and a branch up to Wheeling. Of course, they had the Canoe and James River Turnpike going through the Charleston area. The central area here was pretty much devoid of any major improvement as far as transportation was concerned. So there began to be some agitation west of the mountains that, hey, we're paying our taxes. We're entitled to some internal improvements, too. We want some turnpikes. We want some canals. And the politicians in the eastern part of Virginia were well aware that as a practical matter, if they wanted to hang on to those western counties, they had to find a way to bind them economically as much as possible and maybe to a lesser extent socially to the eastern part of the state. Around the 1820s, there was a large push to provide better access to the western reaches of the state. And Colonel Claudius Crozet was a very well thought of French engineer who had been a professor of engineering at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And apparently did not like the cold winters at West Point and left and came to Virginia Well, do you know who Claudius Crozet is? He was one of Napoleon's engineers that came to this country after the Napoleonic Wars, after 1815. And then he went to work for the state of Virginia as head of the public works program. And he laid out the Stanton Parkersburg Pike. He designed it and was overseer of its being built. He's the one that laid out the Northwestern Turnpike, which goes from Winchester over to Parkersburg. My great-grandfather, John Yeager, surveyed for Crozet. This is from the Journal of the House of Delegates in 1826 and 27, another report of Principal Engineer Claudius Crozet. He had again examined the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike route. On Greenbrier and Cheat Mountains, the roads were excessively laborious. It was impossible in some places even to explore the country without cutting the way through thick and dark laurels. Port Crayon, surveying all of this territory in here, kept an account every day of their travels. I believe they were in there 19 days, and his last entry was never was any human being more happy to get out of those accursed laurels. I guess they were so thick you had to practically crawl through. Port Crayon was the pen name of David Hunter Strother, who lived from 1816 to 1888. David Hunter Strother wrote and illustrated for Harper's New Monthly magazine, both before and after the Civil War. On his way to and from Blackwater Falls in 1857, 
Port Crayon spent two nights at the Andrew Fansler homestead at the present site of Hendricks. Fansler operated a tub mill near his home. Writing about the visit in Harper's Magazine, Crayon said, quote, Fansler's was the jolliest house we had yet visited. His wife was the ideal of a Flemish housewife, his daughter pretty enough to serve beer to a king, his little boys comely, sociable, and obliging. His table smoked with the best the country afforded, excellently cooked and amicably served. It took us back to the times of Chaucer, when mills were the centers of social civilization, and a miller the magnet of his district. Port Crayon's illustration of Washington Roy's family shows Roy's wife and her seven children gathered around the stoop of their home, near the smoke hole about four miles north of the mouth of Seneca. Mrs. Roy puffs a corncob pipe as she breastfeeds her youngest child. All are barefoot, and one of the girls plays with a pet chipmunk as a bony hound dog looks on. In June 1856, Port Crayon visited overnight at the home of Adam Carr, quote, the Lord Proprietor of some 2,000 acres of rocks and forest, was a mighty hunter of deer and could tell bear stories to compete with Meshach Browning. Five flintlock rifles of different calibers and patterns stood behind his chamber door, while skins and antlers adorned his hall in true baronial fashion. The fierce glitter of his eye and iron steadiness of his arm as he handled one of these hunting pieces, his bare, horny feet impatient of shoes except on ceremonious occasions, the rude simplicity of his speech, occasionally startling by its directness, all savored of the mountains, savage and rock-ribbed. Introduced to the supper room, we there beheld an oaken table surrounded by rude stools and benches. On it was neither cloth nor plate, cup, knife, or fork, neither bread nor meat, butter nor milk. Its nakedness was relieved only by a single large wooden bowl containing a smoking mess of frumenty, or wheat boiled in milk, a bucket of water in which floated a gourd, the outer edge opposite each seat garnished with wooden or pewter spoons. A single tallow dip candle flared and smoked over the melancholy scene. At a signal from the host, the family ranged themselves around the board. The blessing, pronounced in a tremulous voice, sounded like a prayer for strength to endure rather than enjoy the food provided for them. After the amen, the patriarch took up his wooden spoon and pitched into the bowl before him, curtly informing the stranger that he had better follow his example. Thus the family circle dipped and ate with a will, and with more merriment than one would think such a feast could provoke. When drink was needed, the dripping gourd was passed from mouth to mouth, and when the bowl of frumenty was nearly emptied, it was again replenished from the pot over the fire. At the time that Port Crown was making his visits to the area, turnpikes were just beginning to penetrate Randolph County. So the lifestyle and the economic situation in the areas that the turnpike was penetrating would have been very similar to what Port Crown observed where he was visiting. And I believe that this lifestyle and the families like Port Crown observed most likely persisted in the areas penetrated by the turnpikes until many years after the turnpikes were there back in the hills in the Hollis. Principal Engineer Claudius Crozet noted that for a great part of the distance between the top of Greenbrier and Cheat Mountains 
Horses in the driest seasons sink above their knees in the mud. He still said that he thought a good road might be made over that ground, but only with proper drainage. He felt that it was very important to get this section of the road built because any other pieces of the road that might be built would be worthless without the road over Cheek Mountain. It was a very difficult road to build back there in the 1830s and 40s with just horse and manpower. They would use a plow pulled by some kind of draft animal, mules, horses, probably oxen, to begin that excavation and men with picks and shovels then to continue the excavation. But the most of it was just plain physical, back-breaking manual labor. One time I was talking to a road engineer. I said, well, you know, before there was modern machinery and technique for figuring out grades and all this kind of thing, now how would they do that? And he said that they would take a mule and let the mule walk up the mountain. And they would watch the path of the mule. And the mule would always choose a path that was a correct grade for a horse drawing a wagon. Oftentimes the turnpike would be longer than the older road. And you'd say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If it's going to be a turnpike, it ought to shorten it. But you see, they, they didn't have the earth-moving equipment. And if they wanted to take a bigger wagon load, it probably meant a less steep grade. If you're going up a mountain and you cut the grade down, you have to add more switchbacks. Quite possibly, the turnpike would have been a more crooked road and a longer road than the road that it was meant to replace. These turnpikes were nice nice roads, the interstate systems of the 19th century. Your average road would have been deeply rutted, full of mud, and you might have stumps sticking up in the road that might be six or eight inches tall. The saying, I'm stumped, supposedly comes from a wagon that's gone over one of these stumps and the, and the uh, axle has caught on the stump and you can't go forward and you can't go backwards, so you're stumped, you're stopped. But if you had a turnpike and it was authorized through the legislature, usually they spelled out that these had to be better than average. The Parkersburg turnpike had to have easy grades. The road had to be at least 20 feet wide, and that was not including the side ditches. There had to be a 10-inch rise from the center down to the side so you'd have good drainage. And every visible rock and stump had to be removed. The grade was not supposed to exceed four degrees either, which is a challenge in itself to get over the Allegheny Mountains without exceeding a four-degree grade. Crozet also noted, quote, a straight road will often prove more expensive than a curved one, suited to the ground, and in a case like this ought certainly not to be preferred. There were a number of people who bid on these sections that had no experience. Bankruptcy was a very common or failure to complete contract. In other words, the guy just left the site and never returned. And then sometimes they would have to rebid that particular section of the road. But it was done piecemeal. The building of the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike really facilitated the westward movement. When the river runs like silver and the birds they sing so sweet, I have a cabin, Phyllis, and something good to eat. Come listen to my story, it will relieve my heart. Then jump into my wagon, and off we will start. Wait for the wagon, wait for the wagon, oh wait for the wagon. 
people were looking for greater opportunities in the Midwest or on the plains or later, gold in California. The road was built for wagons. We'll have a little homestead, a horse, a pig, a cow, and you shall mind the dairy while I speed the plow. Wait for the wagon, wait for the wagon, oh wait for the wagon, and we'll all take a ride. Prior to that, there were portions of the road that were built for wagons, but in the gaps between there, it was really hard for people with a wagon. They would lose wheels. They would lose their beast of burden, whatever it might be, fall off the side of the mountain or something. I mean, it was really pretty treacherous before the road was actually built as a wagon road. It's every Sunday morning when you are by my side. We'll jump into the wagon and off we shall ride. Wait for the wagon. Wait for the wagon. No, wait. Elder John Klein started his ministry in 1835, and he started coming into Pocahontas County soon after the Stanton to Parkersburg Turnpike was opened up. By looking at his extensive diary, I find that he loved the people in these mountains. He just found them very receptive. He found that a lot of them could not read and write, that they didn't have the opportunities that he had, that it was very rough and rugged here, but they were always willing to come out and to listen. He would sit at home at Broadway, Virginia, in Rockingham County, and write up a schedule of maybe two months in advance and write to some key people, mostly German-speaking people. And he would say, see if you can get a group of people together. And he stuck by this schedule very religiously. Oftentimes he would have to get on his horse and go in rainy, wet weather to make his next appointment on time. He didn't call himself a circuit rider, but I guess later on they became known as circuit riding preachers. But he would go into these areas, and as he got there, I understand, they would yell from ridge to ridge, The Elder John Klein is here! And that's how they got their messages across to each other. But Klein would bring news of the day, And quite often when he came to Pocahontas, he had already made his rounds over into western parts of what was then Virginia. And he would talk about Philippi and Buckcannon and Leedsville and some of these other areas. And quite often as he came into Pocahontas, 
it says he came over, or I came over the Great Cheat Mountain down to John Riley's. Get what today is called Arborvale. There was no road from Stanton through Traveler's Repose till the 1840s. The turnpike was complete in 1847, and the newspapers, both in Parkersburg and Stanton, were filled with the wonderful news that this connection had taken place. You could get on a stagecoach in Stanton, and three and a half days later, for a cost of $13, you could wind up in Parkersburg. Imagine if you had to do it by horseback, going over those rugged mountains. I'll buy you a horse, love, and a saddle to ride. I'll buy me another to ride by your side. We'll stop at every alehouse, we'll drink when we're dry. Then across the blue mountains go Katie and I. We started out at daybreak on a dapple and a roam. Through the cold shivering pines where the mockingbird moans. Past the dark cabin windows where eyes never see. Then across the blue mountains to the Abigail. Once you have the transportation, you have increased prosperity. If you have increased prosperity as a farmer, all of a sudden you can buy this fancy farming equipment. It's probably no coincidence that right about the time that this turnpike was incorporated, Cyrus McCormick demonstrated his reaper right outside of Stanton. So it all works together and then you have ironworks that are prospering and you can take your iron to market and sell it. And then in return, you get nice new iron tools and plows and workings for the mill. And you can also buy fertilizer. This was the big boom for guano, which was bird droppings imported from South America. The farmers who had the money bought guano and put that on their fields and then they could raise bigger crops and have more money. Once you have prosperity in one area, it all feeds off another. And so in the Great Valley of Virginia, people were growing wheat and they were either grinding it locally and shipping the flour to market or they were shipping the grain to places like Richmond and Baltimore and Philadelphia and it was being ground there and then shipped all over the world. I mean, it was what fed the California 49ers was wheat grown on the East Coast. By the 1840s, this was the wheat capital of the world. Instead of having to drive stock over the mountains east, one could go west to the Ohio River. It was much easier to take goods to market. All along the Ohio River, there were wayside towns for travelers as trans-shipping places for goods and service from the inland. Parkersburg was one of those kinds of towns. Everybody who lived inland from Parkersburg could bring their goods where they could be shipped to wherever they were needed. Various products, salt, beef, and mutton, and meat products could be shipped that way, as well as wool and grain. And the towns boomed, you know, Beverly boomed. It was the crossroads. Initially, the road was planned to come to Huttonsville and then cross the mountain at that point, 
and Beverly was the county seat and the largest population center in the area and probably had the highest number of influential businessmen. So the businessmen were able to raise $4,000 and have the road extended northward from Huttonsville to Beverly, where it then crossed Rich Mountain. Crossing at Huttonsville would have been a more direct route over to Buckhannon, and the elevation of the mountain was probably a little less at that point, so it might have been a more logical first choice for the turnpike, but road building is often influenced by politics rather than transportation needs. Beverly was the most active area in this county, named for Beverly Randolph, who was governor of Virginia at that time. And you hear accounts of people from Virginia, and they refer to it as a little backwater town. But for the frontier, for the area, it was really quite prosperous. There's a description by Thomas Arnold, who was the son of Laura Arnold, Stonewall Jackson's sister, who lived in Beverly. And Thomas was a teenager at the time of the Civil War. And he later wrote quite a lot, and he was a very articulate man. But he describes Beverly before the war as a bustling town with stagecoaches coming and going and two hotels, hotels. some half dozen stores carrying general merchandise, tri-weekly stagecoaches drawn by four horses from Stanton, from Weston, and from Fairmont, making good time. Horses being changed every 10 to 12 miles, going day and night. Their approach to the town was being heralded by the blowing of a trumpet carried by the driver. Such notice enabled the citizens to gather at the hotels to see the arrival of guests and get the latest news. Sure is a nice day for it though, huh? And to have the hostler out with fresh horses and the postmaster to have his mailbags ready. They were tailors and tanneries and toy makers and it was the county seat. You know, all these farming communities from around the settled farms in the valleys and the more subsistence farms up on the hillside, and everybody would come to town for whatever they needed for their trade. And this was the lifeblood of this isolated community. This was the busiest county seat between Stanton and Parkersburg. This transportation boom really sort of changed the face of Stanton. By the 1830s, by a lot of accounts, Stanton had become stagnated. Nobody was really building new buildings. The streets were sort of muddy and mucky, and, and the people had to mix with all the animals running around in the streets, and the sidewalks weren't maintained, so they had to slog through the mud. Although it wasn't by any means a ghost town, there were hat makers and cabinet makers and four or five bars, taverns. So it was a crossroads community, but not exceptionally prosperous. And that changed with the coming of the turnpike. There was a building boom. Uh, all of a sudden, all these nice Greek revival houses came in. This was the crossroads for where mail was exchanged and dropped off and redistributed. Great teams of wagons and horses would come through. And just in a matter of years, Stanton put up a new courthouse. They added many new businesses. They brought a secure water source into the town. There were two or three educational institutions that were founded, and really a lot of it was part of this big boom that happened. And when the turnpike went through what's now Highland County, of course, it created Highland County. 
they had felt like they were left out of what was happening in either Pendleton or Bath because they were far away from the county seats. And when the turnpike cut right through the middle, the people living right around where the turnpike is, they're all of a sudden economically prosperous. And it sort of was a movement, if you want, on a county level that they were going to be their own entity. And Highland County was formed. Monterey became a stopping off point for travelers who were going west. And you see a little bit later, of course, turn of the century photographs of Monterey. I've seen several where the streets are filled with sheep. Kenno Highland County is landlocked. Prior to the Stanton to Parkersburg Pike, it was difficult for people in this area to get their products to market. Stanton was the only place people could take their animals or any product, maple syrup, deer hams, to trade for salt and sugar and coffee, the necessities. Granddad sold maple syrup, and they sold apples, and it's hard to tell what all, whenever they went to Stanton. If they took something and sold it, they probably got a little money, and if they didn't, they would probably just trade it for stuff that they had to have. There are descriptions of in the fall, drovers bringing huge herds of fattened cattle out of the mountains, which would be along the Parkersburg Turnpike, bringing them down, selling some of them in the market towns of Stanton, for instance, and taking some of them on east over the Blue Ridge Mountains. Hundreds of cattle in one drive. And if you met a cattle drive coming through, all you could do is just stop and let them pass through. It filled up the road. It took over completely. They drove cattle for great distances to get on the railroad. It was too far for one day, so they'd have to stop and spend the night someplace. All this cattle wouldn't stop at a farm and take care of there by the farmer. Farmers would raise corn and leave enough standing in the field that they could sell it to the drovers as they camped out for the night by the roads. More, yeah. Yeah, he used to drive a lot of stuff. That's the way they move, a lot of the stock. You said it takes time driving cows. A lot of them had dogs, you know, along and kept them kind of in line. A Rex Road that lived up in Durban was a young boy. He uh, drove turkeys to Stanton to market from here in Pocahontas County. And he was able to do this in about two days. He said they would get about halfway over maybe close to McDowell, and the turkeys would just fly up into the trees to roost when it was dark, and they knew that was the time to stop, spend the night. And when the turkeys woke up then the next morning, they just kind of fluttered down out of the trees and back onto the road, and they just kept pushing them on forward to market. <laughs> it was funny to me to see whole flocks of turkeys walked across the mountain. But there was a toll gate here where they collected toll for the pike when it was built. I think sometimes you hear ads for a toll house restaurant. I'm sure that's probably related to the turnpike. For years and years they collected toll. There was one at Durban and one here. So much for a sheep and so much for a cow and so much for a turkey. Of course, there were frequently people that avoided the toll gates. That would be particularly the kind of thing that would happen if you were having dry weather. 
and it would have been easy for people to have used a little hunter's path or a toll gate bypass path around those gates that would probably leave the turnpike a quarter mile on either side of the toll gate and go up on the side of the hill and skirt around it. You would pay so much if you were walking, you would pay so much if you were on horseback, and you had the tractor trailers of the 19th century. These were what we think of as Conestoga wagons. These are freight wagons, and those, those are the people that ruled the road. And they had six horse teams, typically, that pulled these heavy wagons. These wagons weren't for people. This is for goods to be moved back and forth for long distances. They developed these big muscled horses that would pull the wagons and pull them pretty quickly. They would have bells, and so you would know when a Conestoga wagon was coming because you'd hear the horse team with all the bells. These drivers were like tractor-trailer drivers today. They had their own culture, and usually they were sort of big burly guys, and they'd smoke these big cigars, originally called Conestoga cigars, but then they became stogies. So they sort of, without us knowing it, imprinted a lot of their culture on America's culture today. The wagons were always blue, and the gears, the axles, the wheels were always red. And if they had a great big load in their wagon, they would put these sideboards up above the wagon bed, and those were always red as well. So red and blue, bright red and blue wagons would be seen going up and down the roads. And those colors are traditional for almost every type of wheeled vehicle in Europe and Britain. If you go over there today, and you see traditional farm vehicles. They're always red running gear and blue for the beds. The people, ironically, that paid the least were the ones with the biggest, heaviest wheeled wagons. Because if you had heavy wagons with very, very wide wheels, you can't go as fast. You can't go as fast as a stagecoach, for instance, or a mail coach that's delivering mail and some passengers very quickly on the turnpike. But a big, heavy freight wagon would act like it's a steamroller to the road. It would do road maintenance. It would flatten the road and squish out the mud so that it could harden. And so those people paid less than a stagecoach, for instance. Your toll went up with the narrowness of your wheel. The wider your wheel, the less toll you paid because it did less destruction to the road. There were continuous complaints about maintenance, though, uh, by those who, I paid toll, and this road's in terrible shape. There's a steady stream of letters to Richmond. The road superintendents were always complaining that people were not treating the roads properly, that they weren't receiving enough money to properly maintain the roads. It's so typical of lots of enthusiasm to raise capital and build something, whether it's a building or a bridge or, or a road, and then that's it. And you don't realize that you've got to have an investment in maintenance and that part of your tolls are going to be to maintain the bridge, not to just to pay off the investors. The public was always complaining that the man in charge of maintaining the roads was stealing half the money and that the roads were not being properly maintained. So some things don't change a whole lot over time. Everybody loves the guy that's on the outside until he gets on the inside, and then he's just another SOB. There was quite a bit of political wrangling they had superintendents and overseers who maintained the turnpike, and they were able to sometimes use political or business influence to get these positions. And I think in some ways, very little has changed. You know, we still build roads in very similar manners today. But anybody that thinks we just invented all of that kind of stuff in politics hasn't looked at any history.
and I'm not sure but what the use of the contractors of Irish extraction on the roads may not have stirred some things up. One particular road superintendent sending a letter in complaining that, you know, you've received petitions and complaints against me and these are the individuals that, that are behind it. Well, they're the leaders of know-nothingism. The know-nothings were the America for Americans part before the Civil War. And their basic concept was that American jobs are being stolen, the American economy is being crippled because you're bringing these low-down, dirty Irishmen in and taking our jobs away from us. Or, you know, whatever the immigrant group was in a particular part of the country that you were in was an economic usurper, um, low morals, uh, drinking and making babies, no interest in education, no interest in religion, or they were damned papists on the you know, part of the Irish and, of course, later the Italians. But there'd be an article in Randolph Enterprise where they'd say such and such a lumber company brought in a train carload of darkies to work on their railroad or to work on their sawmill. of terms like darkies or even niggers right there in the newspaper was something that was considered perfectly normal and socially acceptable. Probably was that same kind of feeling towards the Irish before the Civil War. It's by the hush me boys And sure that's to hold your noise Come and listen to poor Paddy's lamentation for I was by hunger pressed and most bitterly oppressed when I resolved to leave this Irish nation. So I sold me horse and plow, sold me pigs and ducks and sow. Me father's farm and I, we soon were parted. My sweetheart, Biddy McGee, I fear I never more will see. For I left her back at home quite broken hearted. And it's here now, boys, do take my advice. To America, I'll have you not be coming. There's nothing here. I encounter a lot of Irish names doing property research. And I wish I was back home in dear old Erin. The O'Brien brothers, uh, Daniel and Emmett, I believe, had the stonemasonry contracts on a lot of turnpike bridges. The turnpike was actually built in two directions from the east and west, largely by Irish laborers who had immigrated from Ireland. At the end of the project, these fellows were naturally out of work, so they decided to stay here, and they began this little community, Kingsville, which is on the Kingsville Road here in Randolph County, about midway between the new 33 and the old Route 33. I was driving past the graveyard one day and I happened to look over at the stones and I saw all these colored crosses and I knew it was something unusual. 
I stopped and looked the stones over, and every stone had a person's name and a county in Ireland where they were born. In its heyday, Kingsville had its own Catholic church, but after the church burned down, these folks joined in worship with the Italian community in nearby Colton, where there was also a Catholic church. By that time, the road was finished, for the most part. And then they realized it wasn't doing them a lot of good unless you had some bridges. <laughs> you could only go from drainage to drainage, so to speak. So in many cases, streams were crossed by ferries. Chenoweth is principal pioneering covered bridge builder in the state. He was an all-around ingenious craftsman. Lemuel Chenoweth was the son of John I. Chenoweth. And he was very intelligent, but he just had an ordinary education. Built wagons, furniture, barns, houses. Obviously a master of woodwork. Lemuel Chenoweth would often advise that the abutments needed to be built higher. The stone abutments that the bridge rested on. They learned the hard way about the drainage in the mountains of western Virginia and how much water could gather in a stream bed. Many, many bridges were damaged that way, sometimes even in construction. Maybe the abutments wouldn't wash out, but the bridge would wash away. And Chenoweth built probably around a dozen covered bridges on turnpikes. They were far ahead to even put a cover on an open bridge. It seems as though an open bridge would maybe last 10 years. They would last and last and last if it was covered and shed the water, but if it wasn't, they could go out amazingly fast whether they were washed out or not. They'd just start rotting in the way, you know. There's always been a story that circulated of Lemuel Chenoweth building a model of his bridge design and taking that scale model to Richmond, there being presentations by all the highfalutin engineers of all their bridge designs and why they should get the bridge contracts on the Stanton Pergersburg Turnpike. And according to those stories, he just listened quietly while they all did that, while he assembled his bridge model between two chairs, stood on top of it, and it held him. And that convinced the members of the Board of Public Works that he knew how to build a bridge. I also checked on this, and he was the low bidder, which probably also helped in securing the contract. But that's a West Virginia legend that goes with Chenoweth. Lemuel Chenoweth bid on some bridges, particularly the one at Beverly. That was his first bridge. As soon as that bridge was built, the next bridge contract specified that the bridge at Beverly was a specimen, that's the word they used, the standard which they expected these bridges to be built to. His house sat right on the corner there. He wanted that contract. And, of course, the thing that brought the bridge down was in the Civil War in 1865 when General Rosser made his raid on Beverly, January the 12th, I believe it was. When he left town, they burnt the bridge. But had a way about being profitable because... More than once, Chenoweth built the bridge back <laughs> after the war. But he built the Beverly Bridge back in 1872. Come on! All the traffic, 
went west on the Staten, Parsonsburg Pike, went through that bridge. It was covered, and there we'll forget the dust was thick there, shoe mouth thick all the time inside of that bridge, with buggies and wagons. We'd have to go through that bridge to go to Georgetown to see my grandmother. I've been through that bridge many of a time. We always went across the bridge when we had a flood and watched the waters. Covered the whole valley many a time. There was an old tree there. They always had a high water mark there. And I recall in 28, we had one of the largest snowstorms I remember seeing in this valley. We had a terrible flood, and that was the highest mark on that tree, as far as I remember. In 1940, late 40s, there were more than 80 covered bridges in West Virginia. There are now 17. So they've been disappearing at a fairly rapid rate. I was old enough as a kid to witness the bridge being blown up. It was 53. The state condemned it. I would have been 12. The main concern was school buses crossing from the Georgetown Road over into Beverly. They would bring the bus up to the bridge. The kids would dismount. They'd drive the bus across the bridge and they'd get back on. That was a convenient excuse the real reason was probably economic, that the loads of timber on the log trucks were getting higher and higher, and therefore prevented them from going through the bridge, either to go to Rich Mountain or to bring logs back from Rich Mountain back into Beverly. Probably led to the demise of the bridge. So they decided to have dynamite. So everybody was all excited about watching them dynamite the bridge, expecting it to fall in. Well, the, they set the charge of dynamite, went off, and nothing happened. And the bridge just refused to go down. So they decided they'd have to put another charge off. Well, the second charge caused that end to drop in the water. And then they just got a big bulldozer down there and pulled with a winch. So uh, that bridge would have stood any traffic that you could have. I don't think you could have had enough trucks loaded with stone crossing that bridge that would have caused it to fall in. I don't know if they were maybe ignorant of the function of the arch I think they just wanted to get a new bridge built, you know, satisfy people. The state condemned it and they tore it down. And they found out after they'd done that that it was safe. Uh huh. That bridge was safe because Lemuel built it and it was well built. They found that out. And of course, they built a new bridge, you know, it doesn't have a cover on it. No, none of those do now, you know. No. Turnpikes were totally utilitarian, as far as I can see. They were to be built on a cheap basis and provide transportation arteries through some very difficult country. 
And the bridges that we celebrate, like these covered bridges, are very utilitarian, really. We have put this kind of uh, nostalgia on them. I've never met a person that didn't like a covered bridge. Have you? And we lost a lot of them because of the automobile, and it was dangerous to go through these things uh, because you might need a car coming the other way. And these weren't very modern, so they were quaint structures by then. The 1840s, of course, another very ominous thing was occurring then, just about the time that a turnpike ultimately went through here. Of course, that was the coming of the B&O Railroad. Just about the time things looked good for this area. Well, here, here along comes the B&O Railroad, serving the northern section of western Virginia. It was much easier for people to stay in the Valley of Virginia, the level Valley of Virginia, take goods, say, up towards Winchester, Harper's Ferry, than it was to try to come across a turnpike. Yes, there was some usage of the turnpike, but it was not anything like they had anticipated because of the oncoming competition from the railroads. It came to Wheeling Christmas Eve, 1852. The whole line was completed well before the Civil War. The turnpikes had a monopoly for a very short period of time, just a handful of years, before the railroad gave strong competition for commercial business. Stanton Parksburg turnpikes completed in 1847. B&O was finished in 1852. The B&O Railroad was built from Maryland rather than from Virginia. It wasn't a Virginia road, but it went through Virginia and it went through western Virginia and provided access to that area that was much better than the turnpikes. The western Virginians were still very unhappy that they hadn't gotten their share, and they did have these four turnpikes now, but it wasn't enough, and it had taken forever to get it done. It had taken years and years. So this was a major factor in the dissensions within Virginia when the Civil War came along. The South was trying to keep all of Virginia together, and the Western Virginians, who had long been unhappy with the East, weren't cooperating in that because they saw the chance here to get what they needed. Prior to West Virginia seceding from Virginia, you had to be a property owner living in this area of Western Virginia in order to vote or to run for elected office. It wasn't until West Virginia seceded that men were given the opportunity to vote and hold elected office without necessarily being a property owner. The people from Western Virginia tried several times to call constitutional conventions to address this issue, and they weren't successful up until the time that the war started. You know, it never seemed quite fair. These people living in this area of Western Virginia were called into every military conflict that Virginia was a part of, and yet didn't have the right to vote or to hold elected office. And that was another strong factor for seceding from Virginia when the opportunity allowed. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad 
was the major railroad route through that section of the country. And neither the North nor the South, when the Civil War came, could afford for the other to have it. They had to have that railroad. The North had to have that railroad. And that's why the first campaign of the Civil War happened there was for control of this railroad. And the Stanton to Parkersburg Turnpike was the access route to the railroad. The turnpike and the feeder turnpikes that came off of it, like the Beverly to Fairmont Pike, were still very significant because they accessed the railroad. And the South realized that it was very important if they were going to neutralize the advantage that the North had in industry and transportation for them to gain control of the railroad. In order to move men through the mountains. It was necessary to have a fairly substantial road with a good road base. And so I suspect there was a dual purpose, not only in protecting the B&O Railroad, but also in protecting the turnpike because uh, the turnpike gave the North direct access into the central part of the Shenandoah Valley. In order to keep these northern troops out of the Shenandoah Valley, the south knew that it had to maintain some kind of a force or some kind of control over the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike. And this made the railroad and the turnpikes very, very strategically important as the Civil War warmed up. And this was a critical area then for the north to control, for the south to try to keep. And dark war clouds were rising everywhere in the regions served by the turnpikes. January 1st, 1861. Secession is the cry for the South, and I greatly fear its poisonous breath is being wafted northward towards Virginia on the wings of fanatical discontent. I, for one, feel sure that it signals the separation of our beloved old state from the family in which she has long lived and been happy. It was me and a hundred more To America sailed o'er Our fortunes to be making We were thinking But when we landed in Yankee land They put a rifle in Saying, Paddy, you must go and fight for Lincoln. And it's here now, boys, do take my advice. To America, I'll have is not becoming. For there's nothing here but war and the murder and I was back home in dear old Erin. You've been listening to Switchbacks and Wagon Tracks, researched, written, and produced by Carrie and Michael Klein at Talking Across the Lines Worldwide Conversations in Elkins, West Virginia. This is a production of the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance with financial support from the Rich Mountain Battlefield Foundation and the Federal Highway Administration. Executive producers are Phyllis Baxter and Michael Smith. 
For the Stanton to Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance, I'm Michael Klein. And I wish I was back home in dear old Aaron.